0: I'm speaking in a series on the Christian sacraments, Uh, the sacraments, especially as Protestants have historically defined sacraments as meaning uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I spoke about baptism last week uh, and this week, and then I'm going to take off next week. Susan Robb will be here to tell you about Susanna Wesley, uh, and uh, I will be in Beaumont to celebrate my high school class's 40th anniversary. Uh, And I'm actually doing ministerial duties there uh, because we're going to celebrate the dead people from our high school class of (laughs) 1972. And there's a big list of them, you know, it's kind of uh, sobering uh, to to think about really. But uh, in any case, then I'll be back the week after that and we'll spend two weeks thinking about uh, the Lord's Supper uh, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or Holy uh, Communion. Last week I said uh, that the sacraments uh, have been a disputed matter. Catholics define seven sacraments. Eastern Orthodox call them seven mysteries and have one of them that's a little different between the two of those traditions. Protestants have always spoken of two sacraments and yet the word sacrament is not a biblical word. On the one hand, all of the five things that, Protestants, that Catholics call sacraments and Protestants don't are things that we actually practice as Protestants. Uh, we practice the anointing of the sick. We see people, at least clergy do, in our offices and need to tell them that their sins are forgiven. And, and we practice marriages and ordinations and so forth. Uh, and on the other hand, Catholics acknowledge that the two Acts that we call the sacraments, Uh, they call the great dominical sacraments, the sacraments instituted by Christ himself, and they have a kind of elevated place. So despite the disputes over numbers of sacraments, there's actually some widespread uh, agreement about what they mean and uh, how we practice them uh, and so forth. We're focusing now on the sacrament of baptism. Hear this reading from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Uh, in the 28th chapter of Matthew and beginning at the 16th verse, St. Matthew 28:16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Eternal God, as we come to meditate on your word and the promises and challenges for our lives that we find in your word, we pray that your spirit would descend and be with us, give us words to speak, give us words to hear, that we may know your truth and we may live by it, for we ask it in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen. We're talking about the sacrament of holy baptism. Last week I made a few points by way of introduction, and I will simply repeat some of those today. I talked about how water has been used as a cleansing agent through history, and how that leads to religious rituals so we call them ablution rituals that utilize water something that's very common to different religious traditions Oil was also used as a cleansing agent. That sounds odd to us. We always get the gojo to get the oil off, but they sometimes used oil as a cleansing agent, and there were rituals involving oil, the rituals of anointing that were seen as being similar to these ablution or cleansing rituals. Uh, I showed a photograph last week of an ablution Uh, place built into one of the buildings at SMU, built there specifically so that Muslim students can perform some of the foot washing rituals that they are uh, required to do by their religious tradition before they have daily prayer and before they handle uh, their sacred uh, book, the Quran. Uh, I also said last week that Saint John the Baptist, who was really not like any of the Baptists I knew growing up up in Beaumont, practiced a kind of baptism, and immersion uh, signifying repentance. He was preaching to Jews whose ancestors had been through the waters of the Red Sea and through the waters of the River Jordan on their way to the land of the promise. And he seemed to be saying, even if your ancestors went through the water, You've got to go through the waters yourself. Do not presume to say we have Abraham as our father. God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. I take that to mean uh, religion is not something that you can simply inherit. It's not DNA. It's something that in the end uh, calls for a decision uh, on our part. Uh, We talked about baptism as the nearly universal practice of entry into the Christian community however we may differ about different ways of practicing baptism about different uh, understandings of what happens in baptism almost every Christian group practices baptism as the means by which we incorporate persons into the Christian community only a very few exceptions to that Salvation Army and their decision is to suspend sacraments not to oppose them Quakers who say they practice baptism, but only the spirit matters, not water. And some African indigenous Pentecostal groups that don't practice water baptism. Otherwise, baptism is the nearly universal practice by which we incorporate persons into the Christian community. Baptism, moreover, is one element in the process of Christian initiation. And here is where we begin to have some of the differences over the meaning of baptism. But I think it's very important to say, even here, that there are some things that we almost all agree on. Uh, If you think about baptism as one part of an overall process by which we bring persons into the Christian faith, uh, then almost all churches would agree that there are some elements to that that are common. Uh, conversion, which simply means turning to Christ. Uh, That doesn't have to mean a dramatic event. I was in my Sunday school class at Lover's Lane this morning talking about John Wesley's Aldersgate Street experience that he suggested, at least in some of his writing, was a conversion experience. He seems to have doubted that later on, but Uh, conversion can be that kind of dramatic turning to Christ, but it means any way in which we turn away from all the things that are advertised on television. That's not what the Holy Scriptures say. That's my interpretation of it. All the things that are trying to get you to do this and buy that and turning and saying, no, I'm going to follow Christ, right? Right. All of us agree, Eastern Orthodox, Catholics, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Baptists, Methodists, we all agree that that ought to be part of the Christian faith and part of Christian initiation. We also agree that persons who come into the Christian faith need teaching and learning of the Christian faith. Sometimes we've done a better and a worse job uh, of training persons in the Christian faith. Uh, Catholics in recent decades have begun to take the training of adults very seriously, from training of adults for baptism in the Christian faith. They call it the rite of Christian initiation for adults. Eastern Orthodox folks, I know, tend to admit they don't do a very good job of this. Have you seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that film that came out 10 or 12 years ago? Th- that film depicts the baptism of a nominally. Christian guy into the Eastern Orthodox Church, and, and it doesn't show him learning anything about Orthodoxy. It just goes, it shows him going through the process of anointing and baptism. I was with a group of Orthodox folks right at the time that had come out, and they were all kind of laughing at themselves and saying, yeah, that's pretty true. We don't do a lot of training in the Christian faith. And they were saying, we need to. We need to do better training uh, and teaching the elements of the Christian faith. Folks, I think this is a challenge for us in the United States. A long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, but it was Beaumont when I was growing up there, and you can pretty much calculate how long ago that actually was, there was a presupposition that everyone was Protestant unless you were declared to be Catholic or Jews, we had a lot of Jews in Beaumont, a few Eastern Orthodox, and a few non-practicing people, probably a few Muslims, but they were very invisible in Beaumont at that time. The presupposition, though, was basically everybody's Protestant, and if somebody joins your Methodist church, they don't need a Christianity class, they, well, we, we all know that stuff, uh, they just need a class in Methodism uh, to tell them what's distinctive about the Methodists as opposed to the Baptists and any other groups that there might be. But it was basically Methodists and Baptists and Beaumont, handful of Pentecostals and others and so forth. Well, uh, I think those days are long, long past. You can't presuppose that people coming into this church or any other church have had a significant introduction to the Christian faith. So catechesis, training in the Christian faith, becomes a critical element for us. Christian initiation ought to involve a public renunciation of evil and a public profession of the Christian faith. It doesn't do just to say you have an experience in your heart. You've got to get up in front of the group and say it. There's a lovely story that St. Augustine tells about the conversion of a superstar philosopher whose name was Marius Victorinus. Marius Victorinus, big star philosopher, and he... Starts learning about Christianity, and he's intrigued by it, and then he says to his pal, he says, I want you to know I've become a Christian. And his friend says, Mario, I'm never going to believe you're a Christian until I see you in church. And Mario, said, he's got this smart philosophical answer. He says, ergo parietes faciunt Christianos." so do the walls make Christians. You know, that's pretty smart, you know, right? But his friend says, well, no, but Jesus said that if you confess me before other people, I will confess you before the angels of heaven. Well, Marius is kind of struck by this, and he thinks, I got to do this. And so he comes into the church at Rome, and, and the, the, the text of the confession says, the congregation susurrat. Now, that's onomatopoetic language. Remember onomatopoeia? And and onomatopoetic language is language that actually sounds like what was going on. Susurat means sh- 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 ooh, 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 it's like you know Alice Cooper came into my church or Marilyn Manson. Ooh, ooh, ooh far out! This is cool, you know. And uh, and everybody's buzzing about it. And then the priest. This is the funny thing Augusta tells. They're going to make him a deal. They're going to cut him a deal. They say ah. Mario, we know it's, it's embarrassing to get in front of all those people and everything. You're a big star, so tell you what, we'll just go over and huddle in the corner and you can make your confession of faith to us. And Marius, at this point, renounces the priests and says, no dudes, that's not exactly what he said in Latin, but, <laughs> but he says, guys, Jesus said, you confess me before people right before men in the older translation you got to do this so he stands up on the platform and he recites the faith in a set form of words and that set form of words augustine gives it in one of his treatises and it goes like this i believe in god the father almighty the maker of heaven you you know a lot of it's very very similar to what we call the apostles creed today public renunciation of evil and profession of the faith. Now, it used to be that you had to renounce the devil and all his works. That's still part of it. I can never think of that without thinking of the film The Godfather. Uh, I I don't know if you've ever seen it, but while the family, the Corleone family, is there having their grandkid baptized, their henchmen are out machine-gunning all of their uh, opponents and everything. It's not a very positive image of Catholic piety or anything, but Uh, Public renunciation of evil and the devil traditionally, and then baptism by water as one component of that process of Christian uh, initiation, and sometimes, very often, the Lord's Supper uh, as the sign of full inclusion into a Christian community. A lot of the debates we have about the meaning of baptism really come down to in what order do you do these things, right? I mean, if you grew up in the first Baptist church of Winona, Texas, you know, right across the street from where I was pastor at the Methodist church in Winona, Texas, and that was Church Street is the Baptist and the Methodist, that was religion in Winona. Uh, if you grew up in the Baptist church there, well, you're going to have a conversion experience first, Then you're going to have a public profession with baptism. You might later be taught or learn the Christian faith, though Baptists are now going to more the pattern of teaching and learning before you make your public profession. And then the first time the congregation has Holy Communion, you're going to have the Lord's Supper with them. If you grew up in a Catholic church, you would probably be baptized as an infant. At age seven or eight, you would have your first communion. At age 12 or 13, after going through the process of catechesis and learning the catechism, you would be confirmed and make your public renunciation of evil and profession of faith. Uh, it would happen more in that order. If you grew up in the Methodist church in Winona, you'd probably be baptized as an infant. And then the big question. Now when I was little, we didn't let babies have communion or our children have holy communion. My parents said, You need to understand what's going on before you can do that. Charles Allen was, you remember Charles Allen? He was pastor of First United Methodist in Houston. He was from Georgia, and he had this thick Georgia accent. They said he used to go back every month to keep it up. (laughs) uh, Just part of the the thing. Charles Allen used to say, Now these Baptists, they think that and you don't understand what's going on. You ought not be baptized. He said, "Well, I got members of my board at church that don't know what's going on." <laughs> and uh so you know, I made, made a lot of understanding what was going on. Uh that sort of changed from the time I was a kid to when I was older that children were admitted to Holy Communion. But my my time you, until you were confirmed, you were not admitted to communion in Methodist churches. That was true generally of Lutherans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and others, but we were baptized as infants, and we learned the faith in preparation for uh, our confirmation. Different patterns in different churches have prevailed, uh, and that accounts for a lot of the differences in how we practice baptism. Now, coming in this evening, uh, no, this is morning. We're still morning. Coming in this morning, uh, Garth, uh, Professor Garth, said to me, uh, he said, I gave some really good Baptist teaching last week. You may be thinking I'm going to do that a couple of times here. One of the interesting things is Methodists have engaged in ecumenical conversations with other Christians, and I'm very much aware of ecumenical conversations. And it really is true that the Baptists have influenced us, especially on the matter of, of Holy Communion. We haven't, some of you will be very pleased to know, we haven't completely gone across the river or across Church Street over to the Baptist way of thinking. Uh, but first of all, almost every scholar I know today uh, is aware of the fact that immersion was the preferred mode of baptism in early Christian churches. Uh, the I think the passage that the Baptist used to quote all the time is appropriately quoted, John 3, 32. Now John, meaning John the Baptist, was also baptizing in Enon near Salem, or Salim, because there was much water there. I think the point was, he felt like you needed to have a lot of water, right? Uh, if you were sprinkling, it didn't take much water, and if you were pouring just a little bit, it didn't take much water. Uh, The word baptizin in Greek really means to dip, to dunk, to immerse. Um, Dunkin' Donuts would be baptizing donuts uh, in Greek. (laughs) I've never seen it, but I'm sure it's baptizontes, whatever the word for donuts is. Uh, That's really the meaning of the term. And honestly, Christians practiced immersion until Christianity spread to northern Europe. And I think it was out of genuine pastoral concern for baptizing people in frozen streams that uh, people said, maybe we can use a little less water in emergency situations. And as you know, sometimes over a period of centuries, emergency situations sort of become the norm along the way. In Eastern Orthodox churches, they baptize infants. Uh, by immersion and they say that they have a very good rate of survival of (laughs) baptism. Apparently infants have actually been in water before and they kinda know how to operate uh, in that context. Here's a comment about baptism from around 150 A.D. CE, as we say as historians these days. Uh, it's a comment from a book called the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It's a very interesting comment upon how you actually perform baptism, and it doesn't quite follow the way Methodists and Baptists have argued about this in the, in the past. What he says is, Baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water, presumably still water. And if you are not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think that means he takes baptism by immersion to be normative. Uh, here he doesn't even say immersion. He takes. I think he just presumes that the word baptizin means immerse. Immerse in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit running water why running water I don't know maybe it's because you know God's spirit is always moving so running water is a better symbol of God's spirit than still water something like that he doesn't undertake to explain it and he says you know if you're if you're not able to baptize in cold water then do so in hot water I have no idea Uh, I think cold water is probably more hygienic than warm water for baptizing but uh, just by a little bit I suppose but if you have either then it's kind of a concession but if you don't have either of those don't worry I'm not in other words they baptize by immersion normally but they're not terribly worried about how much water it takes uh, to bring a person into the Christian community the position Methodists have always taken is that supposedly you're free to choose immersion pouring or sprinkling my dad uh, as a Methodist chose to be baptized by immersion when he was in high school now this is the terrible thing about it he had to go to the Baptist church to do it. Uh, and uh, I know Methodists who have gone to the point of using swimming pools so they don't have to go to the Baptist church to use the baptistries. Believe it or not, a few Methodist churches are being built now with baptistries that allow immersion. Because if we're going to say we allow people the option of immersion, then we really ought to make that architecturally available to them. Typically not in the Baptist form. If you want to see that illustrated, Look up on YouTube, Cannonball Baptism, and you will see how that isn't supposed to work, actually. But um, uh, typically a shallow pool, but a pool in which a person can be immersed. At First United Methodist Church in Evanston, Illinois, where I attended for uh, five years, uh, we baptized uh, on the eve of Easter every year. Uh, by immersion and we brought a kind of tank into the chapel and persons were clothed in white and we baptized them by immersion there. We're supposed to offer the option and I think there's a sense in which we can say that immersion ought to be seen as a kind of normative, at least historically normative form of baptism. Now here is how we practice adult baptism as a normative practice in the United Methodist Church and here I'd like to take I ask you to take the principal textbook of Methodist theology, uh, take our hymnal, and turn to page 32, uh, and here you will see how we are supposed to do this. Um, excuse me, 33, 32 is the explanation. You'll notice that we say baptismal covenant 1, 2, and 3. There are three different forms for baptism, just as there are four different forms for the Lord's Supper. Uh, The first three of the forms for the Lord's Supper are largely the same. The fourth form is the old language that we inherited from the Church of England and still in use in a lot of United Methodist churches. Remember, ye that do truly and earnestly repent ye of your sins and are in love and And all that stuff about manifold sins. I thought that had something to do with a car. I couldn't figure out why a manifold sins and so forth. Here's our service. This hymnal is different than, I think, every other Methodist hymnal historically. Because every other one I'm aware of had the ritual for infant baptism first and the ritual for adult baptism second as a kind of odd exception to that uh, practice. This one follows the ecumenical pattern of saying the first form of baptism is holy baptism, confirmation, reaffirmation of faith, reception into a United Methodist Church, reception into a local congregation. Uh, there's, there's a sense in which I think we're trying to say that's the form that has it all. This has got everything in it. And then the second form is a form for infant baptism. There is an introduction to the service, which I have formally protested by an article published in Quarterly Review, but I'm not going to take you into my particular point of, uh, of uh, concern over that introduction. Uh, it... Um Uh, says what God is doing in baptism and it says that we are primarily initiated into Christ's holy church right that's the main meaning is that we're brought into the church through baptism second thing that we do is we ask persons for a renunciation of sin and a profession of faith folks we have gotten tougher about this Methodists used to be really wimpy about the renunciation part of things. And although we haven't named the devil now, uh, we have got a pretty tough series of uh, pr- pr- renunciations that we ask. Uh, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, that includes the devil, and repent of your sin? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Now, this is the positive thing. Confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. Okay, Uh, I'm not sure all of my southern Methodist ancestors could have answered yes to that particular question right that's asking about do you affirm the inclusive nature uh, of the church I think that's a very important thing that we do so we make a profession of faith and then the congregation is asked about that do you reaffirm your faith top of page 35 and then here's the thing that got really wimpy along the way in the 1905 Methodist hymnal that the Methodist North and South agreed to We simply had a question that said, do you profess the Christian faith as it is taught in the scriptures of the New Testament. Only the New Testament. Uh, An interesting thing, it sounded kind of Church of Christ-like, if you know how the Church of Christ folks take the New Testament as the only standard of faith. Somebody pointed out, we have an article of religion that says, the Old and the New Testaments do not contradict each other, and Christ is proclaimed in each of the Testaments. So in 1935, we made it slightly stronger by saying, Do you profess the Christian faith as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament? But that's the only really doctrinal question that we asked. Look now at what we're asking at point nine in the middle of that page. Let's join together in professing the Christian faith. And we ask candidates three questions. Do you believe in God the Father? And they respond with the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And they respond with the second article of of the creed. One of the interesting things I've noticed is that You see those square brackets. I think as as the committee developed this right, they thought most churches would want the short form that just would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Every congregation I know, though, once you start down that path, Methodists can't shut up. You just keep saying the words of that part of the Apostles' Creed. And so it's the whole of the Creed in the end. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? It's the whole of the Creed that is professed uh, at the time of baptism very much like Augustine described the profession of faith of Marius Victorinus when he stood up on a platform and he actually recited the words aloud that he had learned and, and from Augustine's writings as I say we know that those words are very much like what we call uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, excuse me the Apostles Creed today then there's the part that clergy often omit For an important theological reason. It's this Thanksgiving over the water on page 36, and it goes on for a long time. That's the reason why clergy are tempted to admit it. It's kind of like the Baptist might beat you to the cafeteria if you really do that whole thing. It's a lovely prayer, though. It gives thanks to God for the whole, it goes through the whole biblical story uh, showing how water has been a central symbol of our faith. Old Testaments and uh, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, and having recited that biblical story, then uh, we have the actual baptism with laying on of hands. Uh, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as you see at the top of 37. And then we have a prayer where we lay hands on a person and say. The Holy Spirit work within you that being born through water and the Spirit, you may be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And there then is a, uh, a uh, congregational welcoming of the person uh, into the church. If confirmation occurs, it occurs after that and baptism is omitted for persons who are already confirmed. Uh, then on the top of the next page, we receive people into the United Methodist Church. Baptism incorporates you into the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, right into the Universal Church. But we have a question about the United Methodist Church and then a question about the local congregation. We've actually just separated those out in the last 20 or years or so. Uh, but uh, will you faithfully participate in its ministries by your prayers? Your presence, your gifts, your service, and we actually added, by action of a general conference a few years ago, by your witness. Now, those of us who were baptized a long time ago don't have to witness because we only said prayers, presence, gifts, and service. That wasn't, that wasn't the deal when we came in, okay? No, I think it was kind of implied all along that you're going to serve by your witness, but that's what we ask people to do, and then we commend Uh, and welcome people into the congregation. That's how we practice uh, the baptism of adults and others who are able to uh, answer for themselves. Then, if you see the baptismal covenant 2 on page 39, we have a different service of baptism And and it doesn't just say for infants, it says for children and others unable to answer for themselves. In other words, this is a little more inclusive than just infants. This is a service for, say, severely mentally retarded persons who are unable to make a a public profession on their own part. But their families want them to be included into uh, the community of the church. Uh, Adult baptism is the most common form in the New Testament. Well, it would have to be, wouldn't it? I mean, there weren't any Christians before uh, the New Testament, right? And so it's not surprising that what you find in those early decades uh, is the baptism of adults. There are three references in the New Testament to baptisms of whole households. In the 16th chapter of Acts, it says that Lydia and her whole household were baptized, uh, we named a daughter for that Lydia. Uh, in Acts 16.33, it says that the Philippian jailer was baptized along with his whole household. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul says, it's a f- kind of funny passage in Paul. It's like, if you believe in the infallibility or the inerrancy of scripture, this one is genuinely problematic because Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize anybody. And then he says, well, actually, I did baptize this person. And then he says, well, actually, I did baptize that one, too. And in verse 16, he says, the household of Stephanus." the whole you know the house so it uh, there, there is no recorded instance of a baptism of an infant in the New Testament though there are three cases these three cases where it says that a whole household was baptized it doesn't make any distinction it doesn't say they baptized the household of Stephanus, excepting, of course the children below 12 or something like that it doesn't make any it's in, in the ancient world I think that's the way it worked was when the householder became part of a new faith or something the whole household basically came along with them into it. So I have no doubt really that uh, infant baptisms were practiced in many places. Now about the historical debate between Methodists and Baptists about infant baptism, I have a kind of suspicious historians mind about this Uh, and it's really not that the Baptists were right or that the Methodists were right about that. My suspicion is that like so many other things different Christian communities in different geographical areas simply came up with differing practices. Uh, And there really wasn't one that came first and one that came second. uh, So you could say this is the earliest form, that's the earliest form. I suspect, as these passages in the New Testament suggest, I suspect uh, that there were Christians in some region who found it completely sensible that when a householder was baptized that whole family including kids and servants and others were baptized along with them and other communities we know for example the northern African writer Tertullian who says uh, that no only those who were able to make a full profession of their faith were baptized I suspect historically though it's one of those cases where differing communities simply had uh, different practices The baptism of infants and others unable to answer for themselves incorporates them into the Christian community. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that they are uh, fully members of the church even at that point. We're not saying that they are Christians maybe in the full sense of the word that would come with profession of the faith and turning to Christ and so forth but we're saying they are incorporated into the community and God works through this for for no other reason God works through the community so to incorporate someone into the community is to confess that God is working in this person's life infant uh, or not so here's how we do that Uh, most of the elements of the service for baptism for those unable to answer for themselves, uh, are like the other baptismal services. Uh, but uh, if you see pages 40 and 41, there we ask for renunciations and promises on the part of parents or sponsors. Now this is a, a, and sometimes a pastoral issue, how much of a sincere response do parents have to make before we're able to or willing to baptize their children? There was a time in the 1950s when Methodists took the view that y'all come. I mean, just uh, anything will do, and if there's somebody in the community who wants to get their kids done, well, we would just do them. Uh, and uh, even if the parents weren't very serious about uh, making a strong Promise that they're going to raise the children in the Christian faith. the The tide has kind of turned on that, and as you will see, we ask for a very strong uh, promise before parents uh, are willing to, uh, before we're willing to baptize people. Do you see? Will you nurture these children, these persons, in Christ's holy church? That's on page forty. By your teaching and example, they may be guided to accept God's grace for themselves to profess their faith openly and to lead uh, a Christian life. Uh, The remainder of the service uh, is going to be very similar uh, with the same baptismal formula, except that the commendation, if you see that on page 43, the commendation involves a pledge on the part of the congregation to help raise that person in the Christian faith. We give thanks for all that God has already given you and welcome you in Christian love. We renew our covenant faithfully to, to participate in the ministries of the church and so forth. You know, the congregation uh, is making a deal Uh, that they're going to help out with the baptism of that person. Typically when we baptize infants, we do not recognize their membership in the denomination or the congregation. That typically comes uh, with confirmation. Uh, And uh, yet we want to say that somehow these persons, once they're baptized, they really are part of the universal church. That's part of the inclusiveness of the church. A few concluding thoughts, very similar to how I concluded last week. Baptism is the act Christ instituted through which we have been made part of the Christian community. It is important to remember our baptism. John Wesley cautioned against thinking that just because you were baptized at some point in the past, you are automatically now a Christian. Uh, do not lean on that slender reed, he said. That's not going to work. But it's important to remember uh, that we have uh, perhaps made a profession for ourselves, or someone made that profession on our behalf, and they have brought us into the community of Christian faith. We are marked with the sign of Christ. Now, that's most obvious in churches that actually anoint people with oil. May not be obvious to you, but. In Greek, Christos, Christ, means the anointed one. So when they mark persons with uh, a sign of the cross in oil, that's the sign that they are marked as little Christs, Christiani, as Christians, and so forth. I'd like to see us restore that practice in our practice of baptism with some understanding of what's going on there. But even in water, we're marked with the sign of Christ because Christ himself uh, was baptized. Baptism is the entryway into the richer, larger Christian life. It's just the beginning point, but it is the beginning point, and it ought to lead to a life in Christ. What we don't want is stillborn Christians. If in baptism we're born again, that means you've got to start living uh, and not rely on simply that one thing, uh, but begin to live into the maturity of the Christian faith. We rejoice. Uh, we give thanks to God for the great gift of baptism and for the grace of God that continues to work in us beyond baptism. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. i mean singing hymn number 400.